All right, we're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures together. We're in the Gospel of John, just a few more weeks in this series called The Last Words of Jesus, where we focus with a microscope on the last week of his life. Uh, the way the Gospel of John is structured, um, it zooms through the first three years uh, in the first 11 chapters, and then these last several chapters, it zeroes in on the last week of his life where Jesus describes this as his hour has come. And so like his main task that he came for is his death and resurrection for our sins. And that's what we're zeroing in on right now. We're finishing chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open your Bibles to chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs. Grab one of those black Bibles. Um, if, you don't, if you're not used to looking at a Bible, we'd love to get you in that habit. So if you don't have a Bible at home, you can keep it, but grab the black Bible, open it up. It'll be around page 900. Around page 900 in that black Bible, we're looking at the end of John 17. We're calling it the mission of God. Now the word mission doesn't appear in the English translation, but the word sent and send appears multiple times, uh, which is what mission means. It's what missile means at its root. It's something that is sent. Um, it's being sent out. And so the verb form of the word apostle, that's the Greek word. Apostle means sent one. And so the verb form of that appears several times in this text, uh, apostello. Um, and so that means literally to be sent out. We use the word missionary. That means a sent out one. Um, and the idea is that not only are the apostles official sent out ones by Jesus, we would affirm that they have a special role to write the Bible, have an authoritative role in the life of the church. But all Christians are sent out ones. We are a sent out people. We're sent out to glorify God, to obey him, to represent Jesus's love and justice in the world. And so this text is going to describe that mission, the mission of God to the world and sending Jesus, and then the mission of God and Jesus sending us to the world as well. Um, I wanted to give you a little illustration that I think will help you think through the difficulties of being sent out by Jesus. I played football years ago, um, back when I was actually bigger than I am now, um, and I uh, was never great at it, but played football, and I can remember this one game my senior year. I was a defensive end, and I was sent on a mission to blitz the quarterback. And so if you don't understand football and how it normally works, generally most defenses, a defensive end's job is to protect the outside. So don't let anybody get out to the sideline. That was my job. I was always trying to skate out to the outside and protect the outside. But this was a special play, a blitz, where I had to go straight into the inside. So I was doing something very abnormal. That wasn't my normal play, right? And so my coach gave me a mission. As soon as the ball was snapped, I sprinted to the inside. And guess what happened? My coach made the wrong call. The play went outside, and they scored a touchdown. And uh, this was a football town that I grew up, a Texas football town, where we had, you know, like 25,000 people watching the game. And people were screaming and booing. I could even hear people specifically booing me, my name, my number, right? Um, that's kind of hard on a 17-year-old kid. And at that moment, I remember thinking, you know, I was supposed to obey my commander, my coach. I had a mission that he sent me to fulfill. My job is not to make everybody in the stands happy. Now, did I want to make them? Of course, right? 17-year-old boy, you want glory. You want everybody to be praising you and cheering you, and they were booing me, and that was horrifying. But I use that illustration because there are moments in our lives when we're like, God's told me to do this, but everybody else is booing me, right? Everybody else is saying, that was terrible. That was a mistake. What were you thinking? And I wanted to like stop and explain to the stands, hey, it was a blitz. I wasn't just doing the wrong thing. He told me to do that, right? Like, but I couldn't explain 
all that. They didn't know what the call was. And we find ourselves in that position a lot in life. Jesus has sent us out with a very specific mission to glorify him, to obey him, to follow him. And a lot of times those around us aren't going to really understand that. And they're not going to understand our mission to follow him. And we have a choice to make. Am I going to obey my commander or am I going to obey the crowd? Who, who are you going to obey? And so Jesus sets this up. He talks about all the different circumstances surrounding him being sent by the Father and us being sent by Jesus as well. I'm going to read a little section in the middle that pinpoints that sent out focus. So we're going to read verses 14 through 21, and we'll go back throughout the sermon and read more of the details. So 14 through 21. It's John chapter 17, verses 14 through 21. I have given them your word. This is Jesus talking to the Father. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's our mission. Jesus was sent by the Father, and now Jesus is sending us. He's talking in this text as a transition, it's a messy transition between the 11 apostles, the 12th one betrayed him, right? The 11 apostles, and then those who later will come, which is, which is us. Those who will come later, who will believe later. We're all sent out by Jesus to obey him, to tell others about him, to honor him with our life, to love those around us, to serve those, to stand up for what's right, to protect those who are weak. God gives us this mission to represent his character in the world. And our choice, again and again, will be, am I going to obey him, or am I going to listen to what the world says to me? Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at this in more detail. God, thank you for your word. We receive it as your word to us. We believe you're speaking to us. That your word has the authority and relevance of Jesus himself speaking to our hearts, and we pray that your spirit would help us to receive that, that your spirit would give us ears to hear, the ability to process, to obey, to follow you. We pray for this time that you'd be glorified, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we work through the text, uh, we're going to see kind of a, a flow of, of what mission entails, right? This sent mission that we are on right now. A mission is going to start with identity. Uh, we, we just kind of teased that out a little bit last week. We started John 17 last week. We were focusing on glory, and then we ended that sermon with the people of God, and that the people of God have a unique opportunity to glorify God. That's part of who we are. And so this week, we're going to pick up that concept, who are the people of God, what defines us, and we need to understand that our sentness flows out of our identity. It starts with our identity. We can't just decide to send ourselves, right? But we're sent, and that's a part of our identity as the people of God. And then we're going to see that mission is set apart by truth. Um, truth defines mission. It sets us apart. It shapes us. The word in the text is sanctifies us. So mission is set apart by truth. And then finally, we're going to end with the idea that mission does the work of unity. Mission does the work of unity. It's expressed in unity. There's a hard work of unity that we are called to do as God's people, and we're going to consider what that looks like. Um, so let's start with the idea that mission starts with identity. Mission starts with identity. 
as you look through these verses later on your own, and as we look through it this morning, my prayer is that you would consider how this encourages you. What God is saying about His people um, and how that can encourage you. There's a lot of prayers of Jesus and promises mixed together here. And so I want to kind of go through a laundry list of what he says. I just want to zoom through it pretty quickly um, and then consider a couple of particular lenses that focus on the, the new identity that we have as God's people. Okay, so let's start in verse 6. Let's look at verse 6 at the new identity that we have. In verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So, number one, we are a people who have had Jesus manifested to us. To, to be the people of God means we've seen Jesus, and we've been given to Jesus by the Father. There's a certain security we have there. There's a definiteness to being given to Jesus by the Father. There's a security I hope you see there. Verse 7 says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. So we're the ones that know what God is up to. We know it. We believe it. He said at the end of verse 6, they've kept your word, right? We're the ones that believe Jesus' word. We know what he says about the Father. We know he's one with the Father. We know he's sent by the Father. Verse 8, it says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So again, continuing with that theme, we're the people that believe Jesus. We're the people that say, Jesus is right. I, I love Jesus. I believe him. I trust who he is. I trust he's sent by the Father. Verse 9, it says, I'm praying for them, and I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so we said last week that this is kind of a tricky idea because there's an actual separation. Uh, in our culture today, we don't like to make division. We don't like to make separation, right? We want to say, well, we're all, you know, we're all loved by God. We're all the same. Nobody's different than anybody else. But the New Testament communicates this idea that there are those that belong to God, and there are those that don't. There are those that are of the world, and what we said, the way that John uses that concept is the world is the system of rebellion, right? Think of the Matrix if you saw that 90s movie, right? It's this like, idea that there's this whole world that's kind of false and making up its own rules and rebelling against God. That, that's what he means by the world system. And so there are those that belong to that system, and there are those that have said, this isn't working. This is a suicidal obsession with self that I've been following. I need to give up, surrender, turn, and trust Jesus. And that is those of us who are not in the world anymore. So there's a separation. He says, those are the ones, Father, that you have given to me. He goes on in verse 10 and says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. We hit that hard last week. We are the people that gives glory. We show the weight, the beauty, the substance of God to others. That's our job. We don't always do it perfectly, but that's what we're called to. That's our identity. Verse 11, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Think about this. Jesus just asked the Father to keep us in his name. I hope that gives you encouragement. And this is the concept that I really want to drill in on. We're going to see all these other aspects of our identity, the, the identity that we have, and how that affects us being sent out on mission to represent Jesus. But think about that one concept. Jesus asked the Father to keep us. That literally means to guard us, to protect us. We are guarded and protected by the Father. We're guarded and protected by Jesus. I grabbed a picture here of a guard, the tomb of the unknown soldier. Um, and maybe that doesn't resonate with you. Think of other people who have been protective of you, people who have helped you, people who have guarded you. There's a security that we have in Christ. 
In John chapter 10, he says it this way. He says that nothing can snatch us out of his hand. He's got a strong grip on us, and he will not let go. I hope that changes your self-identity. I hope that affects how you see yourself in your mission to the world and in the world. So he says, Father, keep them, guard them, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's talking about the 11, the 12, Judas. Only one of them has been lost. I guarded them all. There was one that was lost, but, but God, that was a part of your plan. It was a part of God's plan. Can we understand how that all works out, how God's in charge of both these evil betrayals, but also the good? We don't fully understand how that works, but we trust that God is sovereign. God's in control of this plan. He's like, I've, I've kept them all. I've guarded them. I've protected them. And this gives us a new identity. He goes on. says, I've protected them. I've guarded them. Verse 13. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Another little marker, right? Part of our identity is actual joy. Uh, Being a follower of Jesus is not being the dour ones or the serious, angry, grumpy ones that obey his arbitrary rules, but it's those who take joy in the salvation that we have in Christ. And our minds are being changed, right? There's a moment in time where you say, I'm going to start following Jesus. This life on my own isn't working. I'm going to start following Jesus and obeying him. And day by day, we obey him more and more. We don't just perfectly do everything he says all the time, but we're learning more and more to find joy in what he says. His commands are not burdensome. They're good for us. And because we're convinced that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he loves us, that he gave himself for us, even when we face commands that seem too difficult, we can kind of step into those by faith, right? And for all of us, those are different issues in our life where we're like, I don't, I don't know about this, God. You're telling me to do this, and that doesn't seem right, but I trust you. And so I'm, I'm going to step out in faith, and I'm going to start obeying you. So we don't always obey him perfectly in everything, but we're, we're headed in that direction. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We're like, okay, I, I trust you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do what you say. I'm going to step out in faith and do what you say. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to keep your word. So that's what he's describing here. And he says, joy is fulfilled in them. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So there's that division again. There's, there's two sides, right? We're different than the world and the world is often going to boo us as we follow Jesus. And then in verse 15, he says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. And that's where the keep comes up again. So he's asking again, this is the repetition, so we really want to focus on this keep and guarded concept. He's given all these aspects of what our identity is, right? We're called out from the world. We have the joy of God. We trust his word. We obey him. These are all aspects of our new identity. But I want you to really zero in on this keep concept, this guard concept. Earlier on, he said, Father, keep them. Do you think that's something you can count on when Jesus prays to the Father? I would say that's, that's basically a promise, right? When, when we get to listen in on the prayer of Jesus and he's praying to the Father for something, we can, we can assume because of their oneness, because Jesus is the perfect Son of God, that everything he prays to the Father is within the Father's will. And it is going to happen. This is a promise that the Father will guard us, will keep us. Jesus says, I've guarded, I've kept 
will you keep? Will you guard? And now he comes back around here at the end in verse 15. He says, keep them, guard them, protect them. And, and, and listen to this, guys. He's saying, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but I'm praying that you keep them and protect them while they're in the world. So, so that's our identity. Our identity, to summarize, is we are those in this broken world that doesn't agree with Jesus being kept and protected by the Father so we can have this parallel sent one identity just like Jesus. Just like Jesus left the comforts and perfection of heaven to come be in this broken world to give himself in love for us, we have a parallel identity. Obviously, we're not Jesus, right? We're not the perfect son of God, but we are in Christ living out a similar mission. We're also sent by God. He says, Father, leave them in the world. Yeah, the world's hard, so protect them. Protect them while they're on this mission. Protect them while they're doing these things. Protect them while they're being hated. Protect them while they're being pushed back on so that they would keep your word and follow you and glorify you and they would have your joy within them. That's our identity. Our, our mission starts with knowing who we are. Do you know who you are? Do you know that you're protected? This is a really tough one for a lot of us. A lot of us have been let down in big ways by those who should have protected us. I know those things have happened in my life. I know most of you, those things have happened in your life. Um, probably they've happened in everybody's life because we live in a broken world. People that are, should have been looking out for you were not looking out for you, and that hurts us, and that makes us not want to trust the next person. It makes us not want to trust God. But here we have promises that God will keep us. It's not a promise that we'll never hurt. It's not a promise that we'll never be hated. It's not a promise that we're magically going to be transported to heaven the minute we start following Jesus but it is a promise that he will keep us. He will guard us. He will protect us. And so our mission flows out of that identity. You have to have a confidence in God's keeping of you and God's guarding of you and his love for you. And again, the clearest way we see that is in the cross. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the most crystal clear way we understand that God is the one who is for us and loves us and has taken care of our sin and then wants to send us out to be a blessing to other people. And so we can't progress in mission unless we have that clear in our head. And what I'm saying is we have to recognize, oh, I've been hurt in the past, so it's going to be hard for me to clarify that, right? It's going to be hard for me to really absorb that this is true because I've been hurt. So I've learned these self-protective ways of being cynical about the world or whatever it is. We all handle those hurts in different ways. And I have to say, yeah, I have been hurt, but I can trust God. Maybe I can't trust other people, but I can trust God. And here's the crazy thing is what that does is learning that you can trust God enables you to step out in faith and keep trusting human beings, right? Knowing they might let me down, but God's got me. So, so we would think, right, you might think, oh, that means I'm just going to trust God and I'm never going to trust a person again. I'm never going to trust a human being again. But the New Testament says, no, because you trust God, you can enter into a relationship with other people. Now, of course, you got to be careful, right? If, if someone robbed your house, you, you probably don't want to say, I forgive you, and then give them the keys again next week, right? There's like, it's okay to have healthy boundaries, people. Right? If you don't understand that, celebrate recovery. Monday nights, codependency, you need to you know, kind of work on that, okay? It's okay to have boundaries, but you want to still be in a relationship with people. You want to forgive people with reasonable boundaries, still entrust yourself to other people because God's got you, because he's keeping you. And that enables us then to be of use in the world, to, to serve others. I want you to think about it from this framework as well. We've all been let down, but we know that God doesn't let us down. What does that mean for how we interact with those under our 
protection and authority? Who are the people around you that God has said, I want you to keep them. I want you to guard them. Who are the people that God's put in your, we call this sometimes sphere of influence, right? Um, Maybe you're not a dad. Maybe you're not a commander. Maybe you're not a teacher. So you don't have like this clear black and white, these are my people. I got to protect them, right? But there are people around you and God is sending all of us to be our brother's keeper. Who are the people around you that God is saying, I want you to go and be of use to them, keep them, protect them in my name, love them, care for them, pray for them, ask them how they're doing, minister to them, serve them? Who are those people in your immediate circle of influence and how can you show them the Father's identity in your protection of them? The next thing we see is that mission is set apart by truth. Mission is set apart by truth and we see this in just a few little verses. If you look at verses 16 through 20, we see this uh, concept that mission is set apart by truth. Uh, The word sanctify Um, is the same word for holy in the Greek, right? Sanctify is the verb, holy is the adjective, but it's the same Greek word, hagios. You've probably heard of the famous uh, cathedral, the Hagia Sophia. That means the holy place, or the holy holy wisdom, I think is literally what that means. So hagios is a Greek word for holy. And so adjective is holy, verb is sanctify, set apart. That's what that means. Noun is saint, right? Um, so this is something we're confused about. If you come from like uh, Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, often they just use the word saint for famous people. But the New Testament uses the word saint for a believer. You are sanctified. You belong to Jesus. You're a saint if you believe in Jesus. That's the way the New Testament uses that term. So that's going to come up in this text. And I'm using the word set apart because that's literally what it means. It means to be set apart for a special purpose. So we'll read verses 16 through 20. Starting in verse 16, it says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, right? So there's that definition again. There's a difference. There's those over here that are this way. They're in rebellion. They want to do life on their own without God. And then there are those over here that say, it's not working for me. I need you, Jesus. We entrust ourselves to him. We start following him, right? Two sides. Verse 17, he goes on and he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So again, this is the prayer of Jesus to the Father saying Jesus set them apart. So uh, just to explain here, the way this word is used in the New Testament, if you believe in Jesus, you are set apart. But we typically use this as the ongoing process. You know what God's going to do? He's going to keep setting you apart. It's an ongoing process. So you're set apart because you're adopted, you belong to him, you're in his family, he loves you, and nothing can snatch you out of his hand, right? So that's a serious kind of set apartness that you already have. You are a saint, a set apart one. But you know what that means? It means he's not going to give up on you. As Philippians 1 says, he's going to finish what he started. He's going to bring to completion what he's begun through the gospel in your life. So he's going to keep setting you apart by his truth. It's an ongoing process, and it can often be a painful process. I'm going to give you a picture here that I think will be helpful. This is someone carving wood. Just imagine yourself a block of wood. Now, blocks of wood, best as we can understand, don't have feelings, right? We have feelings, and when we feel God carving away parts of us, we're like, no, no, I want that, and he's carving that away, right? Sometimes it feels painful when God is setting us apart by his truth, when he's shaping us, when he's making us new. But he's making something really beautiful. He's making art in our lives. And so I want you to consider that. What are the ways that God is carving, shaping, setting you apart by his truth? What are the ways that God is is changing you? 
So to read this again, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So he does this with his word, with God's word, with the truth. It says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. So that's kind of the main idea, the sending, the mission, saying send, send them as you've sent me. Verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. That's really the same word as sanctify. I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Commentators here talk about the idea of a high priest sanctifying themselves, right? Setting them apart, purifying themselves. The symbolism of the Old Testament is they would take baths, right? They would wear special clothing. They would go through special procedures to show that in our normal state, we're not holy, right? Just kind of living life casually, we don't reflect the glory of God. And so in the Old Testament, there was all kinds of what I call cartoons, flannel graph, projections, art, and imagery. It was like theater telling a story that God is holy and we are not. So the sanctification process is us being set apart by God's word. And Jesus is saying, I'm set apart, I'm sanctified, so that this process can continue. And he's about to make the ultimate priestly sacrifice, right? It's Passover week in Jerusalem. He's now the fulfillment of, of all this art, all this theater, all this drama that's been going on for thousands of years that's pointing to the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest. If you want to unfold that more, look at the book of Hebrews that unfolds that this is, this is what we've been waiting for. He's, he's the one we've been looking forward to that's making it all right. So he says, I sanctify myself, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So again, this is the connection we see. He's not just talking about the special disciples, not just those sent ones. He's talking about us as well. He's talking about those who believe. There's the team that he starts with. There's this foundation. The apostles and prophets, it says in the New Testament, they are the foundation. They definitely have a greater authority than we have. They wrote the Bible. There's definitely a difference between us and apostles, but we are also a part of what God was starting with them. We're a part of his church. We are also sent ones. We're sent into the world. And so we have to recognize what he's doing. He's sanctifying us. He's shaping us. My question for you is, in what ways is God carving, shaping, and setting you apart? One of my my favorite quotes about this as it pertains to our identity as the people of God and the mission that we're sent out on is this. It's by Paul Tripp. He says, we are people in need of change, helping people in need of change. Right? Right? So this is how sentness, mission, goes with our ongoing need to be changed, to be set apart by the truth. We are people in need of change, helping people in need of change, right? We're not any different in that level than those we're we're seeking to help. And so we're saying, man, I I need help, and God is setting me apart by His truth. And I want to help you with God's truth as well and bring you along on this journey. And so I want you to have that in mind because a lot of times what we have in mind is this other picture of, well, once I get perfect, then I can help people, right? Have you ever had that view? Like once I'm completely sanctified, once I've arrived, then I will help people. Well, well, no, you won't because you'll be in heaven when you're completely sanctified, okay? You'll be in heaven. You won't be of, of use here any longer. So we are people in need of change helping people in need of change. So we are sent out. We're on the mission of God while we're being set apart by his truth. So then a second question, are, are you letting his truth set you apart? 
big problem our culture has is we don't want to listen to anything that agrees or disagrees with us, right? We see this really bad in the political climate, right? Like, I'm on this side, you're on that side, people on that side are evil, people on this side are good, right? We're, we're so divided in a lot of these ways in the political climate, with social media, just growing division more and more. And in this climate, we don't want to listen to opposing viewpoints, right? More and more, we only listen to what already agrees with us. And this dramatically affects how we face Scripture, right? Because think of most of your friends that, that don't like the Bible, and maybe I'm getting too close to home, think of yourself when you don't like the Bible, right? Think of me when I don't like the Bible. It's because it disagrees with us. How dare you, God, disagree with me? But how are we ever going to change? How are we ever going to mature? How are we ever going to be set apart and transformed if we don't allow Scripture to disagree with us? So it's really important that we have a high view of Scripture. There are two ways that we need to listen to Scripture when it disagrees with us. One is from the conviction standpoint, right? When Scripture says you're doing the wrong thing. And that's, I think, the hardest place for us to listen in our culture. I think in our culture right now, predominantly, we want to say there is no wrong thing. There's no such thing as a wrong thing. You do you, right? That's kind of where we are. That's kind of the, the air that we breathe in this culture. And I would recommend if you ever want to mature and grow as a human being, you need to be open to the humble idea that you could be wrong and listen to Scripture in those areas where you could be wrong and your behavior needs to change. But that's not enough. We also have to listen to Scripture when it says, our God is a forgiving, loving God who has shown grace to us in Christ and gives us resurrection life through Him. That's the other thing we need to hear from Scripture. Those are two messages. And as modern people, we often just listen to one of those messages and not the other, right? If you just listen to the you're wrong, you need to change message, that's kind of maybe an old-fashioned traditionalism with, without a lot of grace. If you just listen to the God loves you and he accepts you, but you, you never actually try to change anything, we might call that a, a type of liberalism or a type of easy grace, right? The scripture is saying both things and we need to listen to both things. There are things I need to change and I need to trust that God loves me and forgives me. So that actually gives me the ability to keep going back and, and keep changing because I know he accepts me, I know he loves me. And so if he loves me, if he's given grace to me, then I can keep facing and dealing with the junk that I need to work on because he loves me, because I'm in his family. I'm in his hand, and nothing will ever snatch me out of his hand. So are you listening to both sides? Are you listening to Scripture? Are you allowing Scripture to set you apart? Are you allowing truth to set you apart? Are you listening to the places where Scripture says, stop doing this? And are you listening to the places where Scripture says, I love you. I gave you Jesus. I set you free from your sin. I've accepted you into my family. Are you listening to both messages of Scripture? Um, we would say that this happens really well in community. You'll hear this theme a lot at our church, that it's really good to, to listen to Scripture with a friend, right? Because we have blind spots. We can kind of play games with ourselves when we read Scripture on our own and just pick the ones, you know, the verses we like the best and that kind of thing. It's good to have the, the help of a friend. So at the most basic level, this can just look like you having coffee with a buddy. Another buddy where y'all just encourage each other in the faith. You're like, this is what Scripture's telling me. Pray for each other, right? James 5, pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins one to another, right? That's just kind of basic looking at Scripture, listening to the words of Scripture together with a friend. I'd really encourage you to get in one of those relationships. In a few weeks, we'll have an opportunity to sign up for small groups. Small groups are our way of organizing that. So what I just described, getting with a friend, listening to Scripture, praying together, 
Um, you can do that on your own. If you're finding that hard to connect with people, we'll say, hey, sign up for a small group. We'll, we'll make that happen in a group of, of 10 or 15 people, right? We come in a living room together with other people or meet in a classroom at the church or something. But it's important to get together with other Christians and listen to what Scripture says and pray through that together with others. Celebrate recovery is a way that we do that as well, a little more specialized, a little more focused on working through particular hurts and habits and hang-ups that you might be stuck on. Um, and then... Finally, I would say that sometimes we need to see a counselor. Uh, we could recommend Christian counselors. Sometimes you're just like, man, I can't, can't make sense of this. I have a, a huge blind spot in this area. Sometimes it's helpful to work through things with a counselor. But in all of these zones, right, in all of these areas, we're trying to listen to what God says to us through the scriptures. When he tells us we need to do something different, and when he tells us that he loves us and shows us grace and forgiveness in Christ. And then finally, before we move on, I just want to share one warning. Mission is set apart by truth. And I've seen this happen many times over the years in different ministries. As you consider this, many of you will be here for a couple of years and then God's going to take you to another church, another place with the army. Um, there's a lot of rotation here. And, and often there can be a people who are very passionate about mission. They're passionate about being sent to the world to draw other people to Christ. But what happens is in their efforts to draw people in, they start to change the message. We have this instinctual understanding of like, oh, well, the world doesn't like this truth from the scripture, and the world doesn't like this truth from scripture, so I'll start changing it so that more people will like what I'm saying, so that more people will come in. And I just want to say, watch out for that, because Jesus is very clear here that mission must be set apart by truth. Without the truth, you lose the mission, right? If you're just winning people to you and not to the truth and not to Jesus, then you failed in the mission. So, so guard against that temptation to sacrifice truth on mission. Um, the final point is that mission does the work of unity. This is the hard work of what it actually looks like to be sent into the world. It's going to look like unity. Unity, oneness, is another way of saying that. Jesus is going to talk about how we will be one because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Right? We talked about this last week. We come out of the perfect unity and love and glory that God had within Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before time began. And that's going to be expressed in, we're going to be a community of love. Diversity and unity together in the church, in God's people. That's how that's going to look. So let's read verses 21 through 26. And I want you to be thinking about ways that you can express unity in your life. What are the opportunities God is giving you to express this unity and diversity in God's people? So starting in verse 21, he says this. Well, let me back up to verse 20 because it's like halfway through sentence. So verse 20 says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, right? That's the connection to us, the future people of God. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So I hope you saw that purpose statement there. So he's praying that we would be one, just like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Why? That they would believe. So unity helps people believe. Isn't that interesting? Our unity as the people of God is going to help people believe the gospel. The flip side of that is when we're divided and when it's more about us and less about Jesus, it's hard for people to believe. And frankly, I think we're seeing that more and more in the modern church. More and more rejection of the gospel because of the hypocrisy and disunity of the church. Now, to be clear, anytime someone rejects God, they are personally responsible for that. 
but we have to own our, responsible, uh, our responsibility as the people of God. We're sent to be unified and reflect the peace and the oneness of God. So we, we have to own our part. And here he's saying, as we are unified, people will uh, believe. They will understand that he's sent. So verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. So again, remember last week, glory is the weightiness and substantialness. It's also the brightness and beauty and, and radiance of God, right? And so he's given some of that to us to reflect his glory. And so this is going to look like oneness. They may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. So it's not just oneness, it's perfect oneness. We talked about this word before. The biblical word for perfect has the connotation of maturity, right? So it's not perfect like you scored 100 on the test, but it's like being everything it's supposed to be, right? Living up to its nature, its fullness, maturity, harvest, uh, fruitfulness. So perfect oneness, mature oneness. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So again, he's repeated this. In case you missed it the first time, he said, I want them to be one so that they would know and believe, right? And here he's saying it again. He's saying this oneness is so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So that's why oneness is really important that we work on it, right? Part of our mission is to do the work of unity. And it doesn't happen by accident. It's something we have to actually work on, like a spiritual discipline, right? It's just like anything else. We would say, you know what? I want to really obey Jesus. Well, I'm going to have to listen to his word. And I'm going to have to start making hard changes in my life. Right? It's something we have to work on. Unity. It doesn't happen naturally. We're selfish people. We have to work at unity. We have to move in that direction. We have to take purposeful steps to be unified. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with you or may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's what we're looking forward to in death, right? That's why there's this weird mix of both grieving and celebrating at the death of a saint. Grieving because we miss them, celebrating because we know they get to enjoy the glory of the perfect oneness of being in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together in heaven face to face. Verse 25, he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So he's saying, here's the mission. We're, gonna, we're not going to give up, Father. He's talking to the Father. We're listening in on their conversation. He's like, we're going to keep at this. I'm going to make you known in their life, and they're going to know our love for each other, and they're going to express that in their love for each other. He says twice, that in our oneness, the world will see, the world will know the gospel. The world will, under, will understand the gospel. Now we've got to define oneness, right? Because oneness is kind of like this vague, hippie idea. Like, what does that even mean, right? <laughs> like, oneness? What, what is oneness? I think the New Testament gives some very uh, helpful, overlapping lenses on what oneness and unity actually looks like. Um, one of the most regular occurrences of, of oneness, of unity and diversity together is this image of us being a body. So we see this idea played out specifically in Ephesians chapter 4, Romans chapter 12, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In all three of these places, there's the idea that there is one body 
with multiple body parts. And so you've heard the phrase before that the church is to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And that's where that idea comes from. We are to be the expression of Jesus' body. We are to be his body doing Jesus-y things in the world, showing the love and justice of the Father in the world. If we can look back at Jesus, see the things Jesus did, and say that's the kind of stuff we should be. But of course, none of us can do it on our own as individuals, so we come together as a body, and Jesus is our head. He's the brain controlling this body, and then we're the body parts, right? So some of you are like the thumbnail in the body of Christ. Some of you are the uh, kneecap in the body of Christ. We have these different specialized roles, but we all come together in oneness. So we're trying to express who the Father is through the life and work of Jesus as a body coming together. So the idea in those passages, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, is that we all have different roles to play. It's expressed as gifts. You have unique gifts. Are you using them to help the world see Jesus? That's the question. And that's one of the ways that we express unity. And then in Galatians 3.28, we have this idea that um, there is now no Jew or Greek, right? There's no male, female. There's no slave or free. Um, he goes on in that passage and in many other New Testament passages, the entire book of Ephesians talks about the unity that we have in Christ, how there's now no more different races and ethnicities, but now there's one new man. And then Ephesians talks about that new miracle of the new humanity, but how we actually have to do the hard work of unity, like we have to work at getting along. So the idea we get from there Another lens to think about this is the ethnic lens. Now, we have to be careful because in our society, this is, there's a lot of um, division over this issue as well, right? We have a history of ethnic division, and we get kind of sick of like one side says one thing and one side says another thing. And, and I would say we have to push the political debates out of our minds. Say, what does the New Testament say about this? The New Testament says that the church should be a place where different ethnicities get along for the glory of Christ. And so as an elder board, we've prayed more and more like, what does that look like? And just admitted to God and admitted to you, as I've talked about this um, in different sermons when, when this idea comes up, we don't really know how to do that. We recognize, though, that there is division. And what we've prayed about is we've said, Lord, can you allow us to reach all people? that our church would look like the multi-ethnic people of God that's reflected in heaven, right? In Revelation chapter 5, every tongue and tribe around the throne together. And so we've prayed more and more, Lord, will you show us where those of us in leadership might be privileging the way we see the world, the way we understand things from the way we were raised, and reach out and try to be more hospitable and loving towards those that are different than us. Not because we want to play some political game of political correctness, but because the New Testament says we are the people of God and we should be united in this miraculous way where people from different backgrounds, with different preferences, with different ideas come together and honor Jesus. I've joked about this. Here's a silly illustration. Um, My son lives in Memphis. My daughter lives in Memphis. I don't know if you know this, but in Memphis, when they say barbecue, they mean pork. Very weird, I know. When we say barbecue, we mean brisket right? Like that's a regional difference. Now, some of you are confused because you're not from Texas, right? Fort Hood, you're all from different places. Barbecue means a million different things. We were in Germany, and when we were in Germany doing a Young Life camp, the Young Life director said, we're going to have a real Texas barbecue. And you know what he did? He made hamburgers and hot dogs. I was like, dude, that's, that's not barbecue, right? Like he meant we're flipping stuff on a grill. Um, so people mean different things when they say that in different places. 
And just having that awareness that like when we say words, depending on the family you grew up in, depending on the state you grew up in, the neighborhood, the zip code, right? Uh, I grew up in Bell County, but I grew up in a different part of Bell County than right here. Like just depending on your zip code, you have different perspectives on what is true and what is good and what is beautiful, right? We have to understand that. We have to do the hard work of understanding other people's perspectives for the glory of Jesus, to honor him so that this oneness would be seen. But it's hard work. It's got to be purposeful. It can't, it can't just be an accident. We've got to work at it. Because we say, this is something Jesus values, so I'm going to value it. So what are the ways that you can do that? Man, two, two things. We just described two New Testament lenses. One is using your gifts. Saying, I'm going to step up and use my gifts, right? We've got opportunities for you to sign up to serve. We're going to push that again. We want everybody with different kinds of gifts serving uh, in the body of Christ. That's one of the ways that unity is expressed in the body of Christ. And then I want you to think about in your sphere of influence. We talked about this already, the sphere of influence where you, where you can love and serve and protect those around you. Who are those that are different? Where you can take the time and just say, hey, help me to understand how I can love you better, how we can bridge the gap of misunderstanding. Uh, just try to act out real unity among the diversity that God's put in your own circle. Maybe you don't know anybody that's different than you. And maybe you need to step out and try to meet some people that are different than you in different ways. Because we live in Colleen, Texas, I think you all know someone that's different than you, right? Like it's a, it's a diverse city. So that's part of why we say, you know what? We want to look more like the city. We want the body of Christ to be as diverse as the city of Colleen is. Um, I want to wrap up this point, the hard work of unity, with two New Testament words to just make this as practical as possible. Here are the two New Testament words that are expressions of unity. One is an initiative word. Um, it's a proactive word, and one is more of a reactive word, right? We'll start with the reactive word. That word is patience. And the Greek word for patience is literally a compound word in Greek. It's long-suffering. And so that's the reactive way. That's the responding way to do the hard work of unity. There are going to be people in the body of Christ and outside of the body of Christ, your neighbors, your friends at church, who will be annoying and the New Testament calls us to patience. Because apart from Christ, we were annoying. <laughs> While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? He showed patience to us. And so we're going to show patience to those around us. Patience. That's one of the ways we do the hard work of unity. The proactive word is the word hospitality. Hospitality. It doesn't always mean making a meal for someone. Uh, the compound word, there's a couple of different words for hospitality in the New Testament. But one of the main words is another compound word that is literally stranger love. It's liking strangers. It's being kind to strangers. So what are opportunities you have to take initiative to show hospitality? To find someone who's different, who's outside, who's not in your circle, and you can show kindness to them. Those are two New Testament ways that we are commanded because Christ showed kindness to us when we didn't deserve it. We're commanded to show kindness to others. And as we do that hard work, we're going we're gonna to be this. Jesus' prayer of unity is going to be answered and people will more and more see the truth of the gospel as this prayer is answered. And that's going to take place. So here's the hard work of unity, but I'd also say and add to that, keep praying as well because it is a supernatural work. It's not just something we can do in our flesh. We have to do something. We have to try to obey, but we have to also be praying and say, Lord, make this happen because I, I can't just make this happen. I can't manipulate the situation to, to be. I need your help. Work in me. Send me on your mission. So I, I started with the idea that um, there will be times when you're sent on a mission 
and it doesn't go well. And Jesus says that's often what it's going to feel like on the mission of God, right? I told the story about being sent on a play and everything went wrong, but I was obeying my commander. There are going to be times in your life where, where you're losing the battle, but he's promising that we're winning the war. We're winning the war of God's love, of manifesting Jesus to the world. There will be days when you feel that you're hated. You feel that you're an outsider. You feel that you're being booed by the crowd, but as you continue to follow Jesus, as you continue to trust in him, knowing the new identity he's given you as a child of God, knowing that he's keeping you and guarding you, he's going to give you the strength to, to keep going, to keep representing him in the world. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us so much that you gave your son, Jesus, to take our sins and to give us resurrection life. We pray that it would be reflected in the day-to-day life of this community that we as a local body of Christ would be both diverse and unified in the gospel, that we would love our neighbors well, that we would be sent, that we would be set apart by your truth. Continue to shape us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.